G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It's going to be a conversation over this next hour about how we understand the state of the Christian church in Australia today. And to do that, we need to reflect on the things that have shaped who we are. Well, it's been said that the place of evangelical Christianity in the life of English-speaking nations over the past three centuries has been unduly neglected by historians. Well, that deficiency has been addressed for Australians. It's an opportunity today to get some great insights into how Australian evangelical Christians have helped shape the national consciousness in our nation. In fact, our special guest today says evangelical Christianity has shaped our national soul. He's released two volumes. The first one was named last year's Australian Christian Book of the Year. The second volume was released late last year and deals with evangelical Christians in Australia's history from 1914 through to 2014. So really we're talking about this last century, this last hundred years. Well, our guest this hour is the author. His, uh, his name is Professor Stuart Piggin. He co-wrote this two-volume set with distinguished professor of history Robert D. Linder from the United States. Now, Professor Stuart Piggin was director of the Centre for the History of Christian Thought and Experience at Macquarie University until 2016 and head of the Department of Christian Thought at the Australian College of Theology. The latest book is called Attending to the National Soul, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1914 to 2014. I want to make a special welcome along to 2020 to you, Professor Stuart Piggin. Thank you, Neil. It's lovely to be with you. Stuart, just before we get into some of the details, and I think we're going to be sharing some really deep and insightful thoughts over this coming hour, but there's a question I've asked listeners to respond to on our Facebook page. It's, how do you describe the soul of Australia? Are we a secular nation shaped by Christian values or a Christian nation that manifests secular values? Now, I know that's something you deal with in your book, and I'll just invite listeners, if you're making a comment, you might like to give your own thought, and it will take a little bit of thought to be able to come up with your response to that. Uh, Stuart, let me just ask you, your first book, The Fountain of Public Prosperity, the first volume, Australian Christian Book of the Year, that's quite a significant privilege, isn't it, to be named that? <laughs> yes, it was a great honour, um, particularly in view of some of the other books which were also... Um, Available to be uh, were eligible for that for that honour, um, so I was I was very gratified. Really, I, I regretted at the time not giving due acknowledgement of the other books that were uh, available at that time. I mean, God is God is good for you uh, by Greg Sheridan. I think is a marvellous book, um, and uh, that was also up for that prize at the same time. I, I think Neil, I 
I do want to thank you for this opportunity because um, my my father-in-law used to say that work unpublished is work unfinished. Uh, but I've since discovered that it's not publishing the thing that finishes it. You've got to promote it as well. And I should be grateful to everybody who assists me in promotion, including the people who awarded that, that, that prize, the Christian Book of the Year, but, but also to you and other uh, uh, radio interviewers. It's, uh, it's very kind of you, really, to be uh, involved in the promotion of this book. I'm just so grateful to you. Well, when you have such treasure, you don't want it to be jailed. Uh, you don't want it to be captured only in the words within the covers of a book. You want it to be able to uh, have a louder and wider audience. And there will no doubt be lots of people listening to our conversation today who don't read a lot of, you know, in-depth history books. For some people, that's got a little bit of a sort of, you know, uh, we'd leave that on the bookshelf. It's not that exciting. Well, uh, there's going to be some exciting things coming over this next hour. As we start to share some of these things, we'll talk about attending to the national soul. But we've got to do one more little foundational thing before we get into the latest book, Stuart. And that is, uh-huh. in some ways, not easy to sum up history in a few sentences, but the first volume which we're not going to talk so much about today, but it dealt with early evangelical Christian foundations in Australia uh, that stemmed right back to the Great Awakening in Britain and then found its way to our shores here in Australia. How do you sum up the foundation first volume and what it means for what we'll talk about today for the past hundred years? Yes, I began that first volume in 1740, not in 1788. Yes because uh, I do trace it back to the, to the Great Awakening. It had a direct impact on Australia uh, because of the people who were converted in the, in the Great Awakening. Uh, they were involved, actually, in, in, in setting up the first fleet of all things and for doing it so well. By that time, Christians were determined to abolish the slave trade, and they wanted to make sure that the settlement of Australia was nothing like that. So the first fleet was actually an incredible maritime success, and it was due to the intervention of those humanitarians who had uh, evangelical principles. Uh, and that's one thing which, which, we, which people who talk about the origins of Australia never seem to recognise. And um, one of the things which drove the writing, the research of this book, these books, I mean, it's 30 years research and writing here, it was driven by the omissions in the secular histories, the... The misinterpretations, I think, of so much of our history. When you put the Christianity back into it, it brings it to a new understanding, which is uh, which is very challenging, really. Um, and so, right through the 19th century, I think it was a great age of evangelical Christianity. The churches were very strong in the 19th century, and the evangelicals were involved in so many things. I think because they were they 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 were aware that they were a minority. They had to, they had to evangelise convicts, Aborigines, South Sea Islanders, settlers. They were, they were an outward-looking group. I think in the 20th century, when the Christians became stronger, they tended to be inward-looking more. And uh, so there's a big contrast between the two. And so the two volumes really, even though the 19th century and 20th century, they do form two different books because there are two different chapters in in the experience of, of Christianity in Australia. I think. Well, I have both volumes, and I'd encourage listeners to get a hold of those, and we'll tell you how you can shortly. You talk about a national consciousness and a national conscience, and yeah. I know that there'll be listeners. As I say, there's a Facebook post some will respond to. But what do you mean when you talk about a national consciousness 
and a national conscience. Yes. I think that when people think about Christianity, they think about the ethical dimension, the moral dimension. They can easily understand how the Christian religion could have influenced the conscience. But I think actually more important than that is its is its formation on our, con- our consciousness, the way that we actually think about things. Um, and uh, uh, Christianity in Australia bears the... Well, Australia, Australians, full stop, bear the imprint of Christ. They bear the imprint of the gospel. The gospel has made uh, a great impact on the way uh, people, people think. For example, in the recent bushfires, we are incredibly aware of the suffering of people. We're very keen to help them. And Christ's example of suffering on the cross gives us the grace to identify with the sufferings of others. Or Christ's resurrection unleashes in the world the possibility of the renewal of all things, which is something we look forward to after these devastating bushfires. Or the responsibility to care for all, the possibility for the reform and renewal of all things. They're now integral to the Australian psyche, the Australian soul. It's who we are. We've been indelibly impacted by by the Christian faith. It becomes it, it becomes clearer when you contrast the Australian psyche with what the what the human psyche was like in pre-Christian days. So I've been in the ancient history department from Macquarie University, and you can see the contrast between Greco-Roman society and their values, and the new values of uh, humility and uh, charity and uh, uh, grace and these sorts of things which come from the Christian uh, perspective. It's, it's, it's a sort of change of, it's a change of the soul. It, it forms the soul in a different way. Well, we Australians, we've been, we've been dramatically uh, formed by the, the Christian uh, message, the Christian gospel, the imprint of Christ. Well, I did say we'd catch some treasures in insights this hour. Here's one of those. When we bear the imprint of Christ, the direction of history and of development changes. And you're indicating that. And I guess when you talk about your second volume, you're seeing what the foundation has produced. We've got the roots that have been put down there in the uh, 18th, 19th century. And then in the 20th century, Stuart, you've got what has come from those roots that is now taking shape as the nation of who we are today. And, of course, that includes... The church today, and, and of course these are big, big discussions, but, but what are your thoughts for those foundations that have produced who we are as a nation? Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the persons who has had an enormous impact on this book is uh, Professor Edwin Judge at Macquarie University, and he spoke about the, the, the task of the historian being to uh, to address the public opening up, he says, of the word of Christ to the world. The public opening up of the word of Christ to the world. And we had that phrase in mind when we wrote the second volume. We thought this is what we need to, this is what we need to address. We need to talk about, uh, the things which, uh, which tells the truth about Christ's influence on Australia's social and cultural history. Those things have been missed out. So when you do, open up the word of Christ publicly. We're talking about, we're not talking about internal church life here, we're talking about public Christianity, its impact on, on, on all Australians. And when you do that, you, there, are, there are three great themes which, which emerge in the book. So there's the disentanglement of the kingdom of God from the United Kingdom, uh, because uh, you know that 
historians love to today to talk about colonialism all the time and and the, the dreadful destruction wrought by colonialism. And people identify colonialism with Christianity because Christianity was so involved with the missionary movement. And there seemed to be this this overlap between the two. Well, in, in the 1960s, as any of us who were alive then remember, when the when England took itself into the European economic community before it took itself out again with Brexit. We were distressed with how they seemed to turn their back on us so readily. <laughs> and indeed, the, the British Empire, it, it just, it was no longer an issue for us. It just fell through the, somebody said, the trapdoor of history. And Christians, for the most part, weren't too distressed by it. There were some still today who would much prefer us to remain a monarchy rather than a republic. But it's not something that all Christians necessarily commit themselves to. Uh, and in the process of disentangling those two things, we, we've got a new understanding, a new emphasis on what the kingdom of God means in the world today. You know, if the kingdom of God is a reality in the world, what does it mean for the way we live with each other? Then there's the public opening up of the word of Christ to, uh, to Australians in the face of secularism's success in marginalising faith. Uh, there's a, a desire to sort of keep Christians out of the conversation. Um, if you do that, then the public ethic, I think, will be greatly diminished. Mm. Stuart, it's just a personal credo. It's got to be a public credo as well. Uh, something very special in there when we talk about the big issues that are going to be debated this year around freedom of religion and what that might mean for the nation. Let's turn our attention to this last hundred years, and of course, there's so much to talk about. But we'll try and uh, we'll try and identify some key points. Uh, for listeners today to be able to focus on where they might really appreciate the role of Christians uh, over this past hundred years in the way that our nation has developed to who we are. Let's go back to wartime because our involvement in wars, First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, uh, let's talk about those sorts of wars and Christians and their involvement. You've spent some time there unpacking just the significance of what it is that shaped our involvement in those wars. How do you describe that for listeners, Stuart? Well, um, the uh, the book, as you've said, was co-authored. And uh, the other author is Professor Bob Linder from the United States. And Bob wrote those chapters on on the Australian soldiers in uh, the First and Second World Wars in Korea and in Vietnam. He gives very vivid accounts of Christian soldiers in action. Uh, and he was a soldier himself uh, involved in the Vietnam War. And uh, so he brings a particular insight to all of this. And there's a lot to say because, as you know, historians have written a lot about war and uh, they have in this area, left the Christianity out as they've left it out of everything else. And there's a sort of a stereo, romantic, American stereotype of soldiers in the First World War, um, which is only half right. The other half is that a lot of, a lot of soldiers, Bob thinks 50% were devout Christians, mm. Protestants and Catholic, including Aboriginal soldiers who enlisted to serve God and country. And uh, he has gone into this in so much depth that he's come up with all sorts of uh, treasures and insights that you wouldn't, which you, you wouldn't normally expect to find. For example, those who are most giving of their sons to the God of battle, those who are most prepared to sacrifice, were Methodists, more Methodists 
uh, young people readily gave themselves to fight for the for the uh, for the nation. But the Methodists were also the ones who were most questioning of war. The Methodists were the ones who were most inclined to pacifism. So you see, they were they were they were most passionate about duty, and they were most passionate about dissent. And that's that's true of, of what evangelical Christianity brings to our nation. It, it brings this passionate concern about all options. It doesn't necessarily say you've got to be a pacifist, but it will encourage people to explore that 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 commitment passionately. Or it doesn't say that you've got to sacrifice yourself, but it will certainly encourage people to think about those things. It's it's involved with, with both those things. And so attending to the souls of Australians in those extremities. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our special guest this hour is Professor Stuart Piggin. He is the co-author of the book called Attending to the National Soul, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1914 to 2014. Stuart, just before the ad break there, I wanted to follow through with you because we've been talking about wars, World War One, World War Two, and just the significance of the Christian ethos within families that enabled us to make the contribution in war that we did. But in all of that, there were some significant happenings going on back home or behind the scenes or the roller coaster up and down and changes that happened within the way people thought about their Christian faith. What are your thoughts about war and about what happened with Christian faith going back to those early 20th century wars? Huge question, isn't it? It's, the, it's really the Australian example of the, the biggest question of all, namely the problem of evil. There's great, there's great mystery here. What is the impact of this terrible suffering? Because the First World War was just an appalling experience for Australians. What's the impact of, the, of, of those things on the on the ongoing Australian psyche? Um, the, the the conclusion that Bob Linder comes to is that um, there, there were people who, who who went to war who were devout in faith, and they came back challenged, and they they never. They never recovered the sort of equilibrium that they had beforehand. They, some, they went into things like, uh, <laughs> instead of being pastors of churches, they preferred to um, minister through the radio and things like that. They had a different way of doing things because things were different now. They, were, they had a different way of approaching things. But it, but it is interesting that, that uh, it is so difficult to find people who come out and say that they have lost their faith as a result of this, this experience. And in particularly in the Second World War, when I suppose it's because we're able to interview people from the Second World War, so we know how they how they've come how they pulled out of it. But a lot of Christian leaders in the churches that we grew up with had been through the Second World War, and they were it's almost as if they seem to be the stronger, the better for it. And I think what all this means is that when people are in extremity, it's very relevant to the present because of the bushfires and so on. When people are in extremity, what they need is not some great theological answer about the problem of evil. What they need is grace to cope. And that's what people seem to find in these these sorts of uh, circumstances. I've been incredibly moved just the last couple of days by this this poor couple who have lost three of their children who were run over by someone who was under the influence of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And the father said of his children, I mean, he said this on the day that this happened, he said, they are now in a better place. And the mother said, 
that she forgives the person who did it. I mean, this is just incredible mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And uh, I think this is this again is the is the imprint of Christ. This is this is grace that people need in these unbearable times of extremity. When the pressure is at its greatest, grace yeah. becomes even more powerful. When the wars were upsetting the way that people felt about Christian faith, uh, as you say, those uh, soldiers that came back from war, they they had a a more public uh, ministry rather than just behind the walls in the church. But there was also a, a real, and I think in the book you call it a theological warfare that was going on, people who were really solidly evangelical, uh, in between wars, say the 1930s, a drift towards liberalism or modernism. And, of course, this secularism was beginning to emerge. How do you reflect on the changes that were happening in the national faith uh, because of those wars? I, I, I think that our book really argues, it's my understanding anyway, that the wars did not make Christianity more liberal. The wars really questioned liberal Christianity because liberal Christianity was very optimistic. It sort of downplayed the significance of evil and, and sinfulness, human depravity and so on. It, it's, it had a very optimistic view of human nature. And the war seemed to shatter that. So I think that liberalism was in trouble um, uh, as a result of the war. I don't think that conservative evangelical Christianity was. It seemed to have... It seemed to have a better answer for those things. So, what we do in the in the in the depression is we talk about uh, a great movement of liberalism, which was associated with with the one who was most notorious at the time, called Samuel Angus, Presbyterian, who introduced um, liberalism into the Presbyterian Church and into the Methodist Church, the Congregational Church. It it seemed to, to undermine a lot of um, conservative faith in in people, um, and. Uh, but I think it had it had a lot to do with the development of scholarship in Germany and things like that uh, at the end of the 19th century, and it was it was something. I think Samuel Angus was discredited by the wars, and particularly as he was so writing himself, he was fascist and he supported Hitler and all that sort of thing. So when the Second World War came along, he was completely discredited. Okay, and as you say, back in the day, Presbyterianism, Methodism, Congregationalism, they'd surrendered in some sense to uh, this sort of liberalism, this sort of modernism. And, of course, there are different churches even today that are influenced by that sort of thinking. I mean, let's not uh, sort of draw attention to any particular denomination, but there is a certain sense in which you have to, in some ways, defend or preserve evangelical thought, and that's not an easy thing to do, is it? No, I think that uh, if pressed, Neil, I'd want to say that um, uh, when it comes to matters of faith, people are right in what they affirm because it's consistent with their experience. And the people who did become liberal Christians did so because they didn't find the conservative Christianity that they were brought up in. It didn't seem to meet some need that they had. It's almost as if some Australians need an, an element of liberalism. Certainly evangelical Christianity itself, uh, at the end of the uh, Depression period, just before the Second World War and during the Second World War and shortly after, became very very much stronger intellectually. A lot of very strong minds were defending the evangelical faith at that time. It's almost as if the faith needed to become stronger intellectually at that time. 
And that's what the liberals had wanted uh, 50 years earlier. I think they wanted to reconcile Christianity with science and, and with the new uh, biblical scholarship and so on. The evangelicals did it probably in a more responsible way because the, what they, they waited until the, the sort of extremes. When, when these things begin, they're always too extreme and they go overboard and they throw the baby out of the bathwater. But there was, a, there was a sense in which they were true. I mean, evangelicals have not only been allergic to liberalism, but they've also been allergic to Catholicism. And there was a lot of anti-Catholic stuff in the, in the sort of Christ, evangelical Christianity that we grew up with when we were, when we were younger. And yet, um, Catholic faith has got a lot of things going for it too. There are things about Catholicism which are, which are obviously uh, uh, true and, uh, and of great value. And uh, so I think that uh, Australians, the Australian soul is non-sectarian. It does not like um, an emphasis on the differences between Christians. It wants Christians to cooperate with each other. And I think and at their best they do that. And certainly in recent years we've discovered all the things that we've got in common in the light of other challenges from secularism and other faiths and that sort of thing. Let's draw some attention to Indigenous Australians now. And in fact, you open your book uh, talking about the story of Mary Bennett, a missionary to Outback Aborigines. Uh, give us some insights into why you started with that story. I started with that story because I wanted to focus on... Uh, on this issue of the, the, the problem of reconciliation with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, I think this is the most challenging uh, issue when it comes to the Australian character, the Australian soul. We have to we have to solve this problem, and I think that the Christian faith uh, gives us the resources for that. And I tried to show in the book by many stories. Uh, of the, uh, the the contribution of missionaries, um, you know, in particular in the first part of the 20th century, and others in the second part, uh, who have contributed to they've, they've contributed their voice to this whole issue of uh, reconciliation. Mary Bennett was a very powerful character, um, and I actually claimed at the beginning of the book that she was the most determined and outspoken of all these uh, critics of the. Uh, typical white attitude to Aboriginal people. But that's really saying something because determination and outspokenness are prominent characteristics of evangelical missionaries. It's an extremely challenging role because most Aboriginal people were demoralised and most whites were not sympathetic and Christian missionaries were a bridge between the two and she seems to have been without fear. She had a passion for justice. She loved Aboriginal people. She came from a strong Christian family. Her grandfather was a Church of Scotland minister and her father was a pastoralist in Queensland who knew his Bible well, and he worked well with the Aboriginal people who lived on his same on their same station. and And the moral of the, she wrote the, the biography of her father, and the moral of the book was, why can't we have everybody living like this pastoralist and Aborigines sharing the land together? It's a wonderful example. Anyway, she chose to live out her vocation through a very conservative Christian mission, United Mission at Mount Margaret in Western Australia which was led by two missionaries, uh, Rudolph and Micey Schenk, who were also very outspoken and determined. And they, they influenced R.M. Williams, the bootmaker. He wept 60 years later when Micey wrote to him and said, come on, R.M., as she always called him, back to the faith, back to the faith. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, yeah, you know, so when we talk was, about missionaries, and I've reflected in a number of conversations over the years, 
how when there was a determination in some places around Australia to even exterminate uh, the indigenous people, it was the church in there uh, with their mission efforts that became a sanctuary for indigenous people. And so you've got government forming policy, you've got missionaries like Mary Bennett, and the, then there's the church and their role in how all of these things begin to develop a compassion, a possibility for reconciliation. A, a how do we all live together in this one land? So what are your thoughts about the role of government policies and uh, Aboriginal Australians and the churches in the mix there? Uh, big questions, dear brother. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes. think, I think when you look back at the history, it is interesting to see that we tried, we tried one thing, then you try another, then you try another. So when the whole thing started off, remember that Philip was instructed to uh, to treat the, Europe, the, the Aboriginal people uh, in every respect like Europeans, he said. And, uh, and yet no white person was punished by law for killing Aborigines, any Aborigines until 1838, by which time all sorts of terrible things had happened. And there were those, in other words... They started off by trying to integrate with the Aboriginal people. And if you look at a book like The Colony by, by Carskins, there are lots of stories of, of successful integration. We could go into that, but that's the first book. Then they tried separation because the two weren't getting on too well together. They thought if, it, if you got the, the Aborigines separated from the white evil influence, then they'd have a chance. They tried that for a while. That didn't work. Then they tried protection. Protection was strong because uh, the evangelicals believed strongly in in having protectorates. Uh, this was this arose from the abolition of the slave trade. Then they tried separate development. Then they tried assimilation. Then they tried self-determination in, with Whitlam and all that sort of thing. And the replacement of Christian missions by government-controlled communities, the homeland movement, back to the country, and all that sort of stuff. These are essentially uneconomic communities and they haven't done particularly well. So this is a huge challenge. I mean... I, I, I remember going to Groot Island in the late 70s and I'd just come out of India and I suffered incredible culture shock because that was the first place I'd ever left outside of Australia. Just, India was so different. But Aboriginal people were far more different from Indians. They are just so, Their culture is so distinct that it has taken us all this time to begin to understand them and they've, possibly they've taken time to understand us as well. So I think this is one of the reasons why we've had this problem. I think another reason why we've had this problem is that we have we have an effective view of civilization. I think that the, if you say to me, what is the big mistake that the missionaries and Christians made about in all of this? I don't think for a moment they, they questioned that they had a superior civilization. And, and yet when I went to university 50 years ago, we were taught that to have a civilization, you had to have writing. You couldn't have a a civilization without writing. That's that's well, that was that's what a civilization was. So all of us believe that Aboriginal people weren't civilized until relatively recently. So you can't blame these people. I don't think for having these rather sad, uh, destructive, destructive views. But if you were to ask me, uh, Neil, when it's all said and done, um, on balance, and that's what history should do, on balance. Were the churches a positive or a negative force in the Aboriginal experience? Um, a, a historian at Macquarie University, David Bolland, some time ago, wrote that Christian humanitarianism inspired the little that was benign in the dealings of governments and settlers with Aborigines. There's no doubt that 
that, that Christians did too little in this area. Uh, but what was benign in the dealings uh, was uh, due to Christian humanitarians. The great authority on this is, is Reynolds, um, you know, books like this, Whispering in Our Hearts. And he lists all of the humanitarians. And if you look at these humanitarians, they're almost without exception evangelical Christians. And he says there's just much to admire here, perhaps more than in the areas where they succeeded. And it's a great struggle they put up. They really put up a great fight on behalf of the Aboriginal people. And he says, with the humanitarian crusade woven into national history, and the story becomes richer somehow, more complex, and in many ways more decent and easier to justify. And the bloke who made a big impact on me, Bob Gould, who was a Marxist bookseller in, in, uh, in Sydney, he talks about the towering moral courage of the, uh, of the evangelical missionaries, the towering moral courage. And even more interesting, Robert Kennedy in his great, great book, The Lamb Enters the Dreaming, he made this incredibly perceptive point. He said, nobody who came out of an Enlightenment philosophy, a secular philosophy, not, he said, I could not find one person who came out of that background who believed that the Aboriginal people had a future. They all believed that they were dying out. He said, only those of dogged Christian faith believed that the Aborigines had a future and would not die out. I mean, these are all secular historians acknowledging this. Wow. Really, when you think about it. Stuart, it is sobering to hear you reflect that the Christians did not do enough. And we're talking not only, I guess, 20th century, but uh, through the 19th century as well. But to yeah, reflect yeah. on the positive influence that was there, and I know you like to use some words called Aboriginal uplift, and uh, there is a certain sense in which the missionary movement around the world uh, has been able to observe that where the missionary message comes into civilizations, there is an uplift by way of a nation prospering or a people prospering. That I think a missiologist, uh, Donald McGavran, I think he had a terminology called redemption and lift. And there is a certain yes. sense in which these sorts of things have an impression upon a people. Is that something that we ought to be working on today as a Christian church uh, in the way that we relate to our Indigenous brothers and sisters so that that can continue? Well, I did notice in one of Charles Wesley's hymns, he, he does write about Jesus who does lift us up. <laughs> so uplift is something that, that, that Jesus brings. But um, I, th I think the, the moral of our story is that Aboriginal the re reconciliation with Aboriginal people is 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 a work for the future. It certainly hasn't been achieved yet. We've had chronic failure, and the Christians have been involved in the failure. But it's essential to keep the Christian voice in there, because the Christian voice is, is the voice which talks about reconciliation. These are Christian words, and atonement, and forgiveness, and apology. These are all things which we need to keep to keep going. So it's terribly important, I think, to keep the, the Christian voice in the conversation. Well, Stuart, well, you might be surprised that there are somewhere in the vicinity of 40 uh, different locations around Australia where we're broadcasting today. So people in communities that are predominantly Indigenous uh, have opportunity to hear our conversation and uh, they can hear your heartbeat and all of that. And I hope that everyone else listening all around Australia too can also just capture something of the important message that comes as you reflect on that history. 
Let's point people to the book to get some more detail on that because there's so much to talk about. I do want to ask you, Stuart, about revival and about church growth in Australia because some people will say we're in crisis times right now. We're on the verge of losing our religious freedoms that have been perhaps hard won uh, through the cultural developments over the past 250 years. What are your thoughts for what's happened in Australia by way of you know the sweepingness of revival and church growth that has happened over the time uh, since that first fleet? Yes, there's a, there's a lot about revival in the first volume. Um, it was one of the reasons why why I was motivated to write the book because I discovered a genuine revival in the Illawarra in 1902, and I was surprised by it because this was this was in the 80s, and I then believed that revival was an American thing that didn't happen in Australia. But when you start looking for revivals, you'll find them all over the place, especially local revivals. And so there's a lot about revival in the, in the first volume. And it ends, the first volume ends with, I hope, uh, a challenging uh, discussion of the possibility that the Welsh revival in Wales 1904-05 may have originated in Australia. Wow. There are all sorts of reasons for it, which I give in, that, in, in the book, which I'd be interested in getting reaction to. When you come to the, when you come to the, to the 20th century, I think the view is that, uh, certainly this is true of, of England, Revivals were not so common as they were in the 19th century. But in Australia, there were still remarkable things that happened. I mean, the, the Gypsy Smith uh, mission in Australia in 1926, there were 80,000 decisions for Christ. There was a genuine revival in Cessnock in the, among the coal miners, coal miners in 1929. Alan Walker was involved in that. There was revival among Aboriginal people in the Atherton Tablelands. There was a church in... There's a, a, a a DVD that's been made of this, a church in Pinnacle Pocket, uh, just near Atherton. It was formed by somebody who had experienced the Welsh Revival. And in 1959, that church was taken over by Sterling Minicon, who was the father of Ray and Rodney Minicon, who have done so much for Aboriginal work among uh, Christian people in Australia. Ray among uh, Anglicans in Sydney. And Rodney, well, I asked him 20 years ago, I said, Rodney... Have you ever been involved in a in a, in a revival? <laughs> he just laughed. Uh, yep. he said, I've been I've been involved in thirty revivals, brother. <laughs> so that is something which is fairly fairly endemic. I mean, I, I was also intrigued that I, I think there is some evidence that, that you get revival even in prisoner of war camps. Now, this is something which people historians haven't written about much. But in that book, Miracle on the River Kwai, which is a great classic. Um, I just read it again recently. It's a very deep book, and written by Ernest Gordon. And uh, he, uh, he 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 apparently was not a man of faith at that time. But somebody said to him, "Look, we really ought to discuss the real things." And this, and, and he, there's an Australian sergeant said to him, "We really ought to talk about have an honest discussion." He said about the real dingo of faith in our present situation. And what they did was they developed this fellowship of freedom and love because they understood that Christ was with them the comrade God who was on the cross who was slain to rise again this is the God that they needed in their, in their extremity but it was just extraordinary what they achieved in that they they, they had unleashed this fellowship uh, in the prison community which included a university to satisfy the hunger for, for education and a library and a range of artistic and artisan initiatives and an orchestra and dramatic society and community singing 
it was just incredible. And, and uh, practical things like a production line to make artificial limbs for, for amputees. And Jeff Bingham in South Australia, who was a prisoner of war, he had a similar experience. And when, when the time ended, some of the soldiers said to him, we're distressed that we English people have to go back to England and we've never, we've never known love like this and we don't think we'll ever know, it, know love like this again. Um, and I think that these people found it harder to be vital Christians outside of a context like that than they did inside that context. It's almost as if in times of extremity. And as you say, when the extremes hit, when the pressure is really on, uh, the power of grace seems to emerge when there is faith present. And uh, that's a powerful impact, as you say, not only in prisoner of war camps, but I suppose when revival does hit, and you've indicated those revivals that happened in the 19th century and they overflowed into the 20th century, and, and no doubt there were some extremes and there were some things that were happening. People were under pressure at the time. Is it a certain amount of pressure that's required as something that forms the foundation for what happens when revivals come? Because a lot of people are anticipating, Stuart, the idea of revival in Australia, a need for that now. Yes, I think that's a great question. There have been two, to my way of thinking, there have been two times in Australian history when we came near to a national awakening as distinct from local revivals. One was 1902. That was the end of a drought long, long drought, 10-year drought, a bit like the one we're experiencing now. And uh, I think that Australia was feeling, you know, there was also economic recession in the 1890s, and that revival came at that time. And the other time, of course, was Billy Graham in 1959. Now, that was a time of great stability in Australia, but there was anxiety over the Cold War. I I think a lot of people thought that with the invention of the atom bomb and the fact the Russians got it and all the rest of it, I think a lot of people thought at that time that the, that the clock was pretty close to midnight and there was a lot of anxiety at that time. Well, in Australia today, we have a similar thing. We have droughts and not dealing too well with climate change and, and we've got secularism not giving us anything. There's certainly a great need for the Lord at the moment. Look, only a couple of minutes remaining for our conversation and so much to talk about. But as we talk about those times in Australian history over the past hundred years, and you mentioned revival, early 20th century, 1902. Uh, you remember the uh, the Billy Graham Crusades, 1959, the times when we might be closest to national revival. But of course, there's been significant developments in church life since then. And the emergence of uh, the Pentecostal movement Just to touch on this perhaps as we finish, because it can't go without mention that the Pentecostal movement has been flourishing in Australia over the past 50 years, and uh, for some it's been running under the radar, but it certainly has come to light now. Uh, What are your thoughts on the emergence of Pentecostalism in a nation like Australia? I think that it, it, from a perspective of church historians, I think that the way to explain it is in terms of a reaction to the fact that Christianity became too too mental, too intellectualised, it was too much mind and too little heart. It created a vacuum. Something had to fill that vacuum. And Pentecostalism did it with great success. There was actually a condemnation of Pentecostalism in some of the mainstream churches in the 1970s. So that was exactly the time when the Pentecostals said, look, the charismatic movement has arrived. We're going to embrace this. They hadn't been charismatic before, they believe it or not. It's an interesting discovery. But in 1977... They committed themselves to it, and they just took off like a rocket. And uh, it's obviously meeting a need. It is it is interesting that 
Australians who have this reputation for being uh, amiable pagans without much spiritual dimension, that their times have been incredibly open to the spirit. And they're sometimes, and they've been very open to the, the Pentecostal movement. There was a healing mission in Australia in the 1920s with one John Moore Hickson, uh, which arose probably from the sufferings of the, of the Second World War. But Australians were incredibly open to it. Thousands, tens of thousands came to hear him. And then, then there was Smith Wigglesworth and Amy Semple McPherson, who were the sort of proto-Pentecostals, people who came before the modern Pentecostal movement. Huge following in Australia. So when you have very successful leaders like Brian Houston and so on, Hillsong, who can put it all together, it's, it's not surprising that uh, this, this meets a need and, uh, and uh, seems to make such an impact. Well, what a powerful insight to finish on. The idea that too much mind, not enough heart has given birth to something which has become a significant movement in the nation, and Pentecostalism. And I'm going to point people to get a hold of your books. Now, we're talking about two volumes here, and uh, they're not inexpensive, I might say, but get a hold of them wherever you can, because these will be treasures on your bookshelf. Uh, they're uh, written by, as uh, I've been saying, Professor Stuart Piggin, who is our guest today, and Robert D. Linder, uh, co-authors. Uh, Robert D. Linder from the United States, a distinguished professor of history. But the two books we're talking about today, Attending to the National Soul, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1914 to 2014. The other one that I mentioned, Volume 1, which was the Australian Christian Book of the Year last year. It was entitled The Fountain of Public Prosperity, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1740 to 1914. Now, I suggest you get a hold of your Christian bookstore, Kurong Books, or you can simply Google those online to get a hold of those books. And a special thanks and honour to Professor Stuart Piggin, because this has been a decades-long project. I think uh, three decades long, I think, if I recall, Stuart, but... Uh, Yes, Neil. Yes, thank uh, you. This becomes. Yeah, Neil, uh, could I just could I yep. just say there are two bits of mythology in what you've been dishing up to your audience. All right. Okay. One, <laughs> one is that um, that this is a some sort of a hard read that people don't read big books like this anymore. This these books are just full of stories, one story after another. I mean, I've intellectualised the whole thing in the discussion. People are probably thinking this guy's far too nerdish. But the actual fact, the book is full. Of, the books are just full of stories. My wife, who is my best critic, she sat down and she read it straight through, and she said, "This is this is very interesting. This is well written." She was very surprised. And I think that another, <laughs> thing, another thing I want to say is these books are not not expensive. Uh, they're subsidised by a very good Christian. I mean, these books should cost one hundred and twenty-five dollars each. They're produced by. Uh, uh, an academic press, which is marvellous that the secular press should publish this stuff, and yet you can get them for fifty dollars for five hundred and fifty page hardback books. And I just said, post them to you, post free. These are not expensive; these uh, are very cheap books. Well, in I would say uh, worth every cent spent on such <laughs> a valuable resource. And uh, and yes, I happily standing to be corrected. And uh, let's not think of telling stories as an intellectual exercise. But I think there is something in here for someone who's going to be reading at a story level and then there's someone who's going to be looking to say, how can I look more deeply into the history of Australia and the history of Christianity? They're going to be able to 
identify those things that are going to be a part of future research projects. These books are going to be a foundation for the 21st century, Stuart Piggin. Uh, Honour to you for writing them. They are just outstanding. Uh, thank you thank so you much for taking some time. Uh, wonderful to hear your thoughts, your comments, and no doubt we'll get another opportunity on another day to zero in on some of these such amazing topics that you talk about. But thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil, and thank you, and blessings to you and your listeners. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.